Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Kavitha Cardoza, in this week for Rebecca Shear. Today we're going to bring you stories all about second chances. Stories of recovery from serious physical and mental conditions. Stories of choosing a new path after you lose a job and of rebuilding your life after war. But we'll begin with a tale about a young man who made a really bad choice early in life and is now trying to make sure that choice doesn't dictate the rest of his life. Robert Barksdale was 16 when he first dropped someone. I had a, a sweetheart, a little girlfriend or whatever, and, you know, Christmas was right around the corner and I wanted to buy her something nice. He walked up to a stranger and snatched her purse, but barely got to the next block when he was caught. Barksdale was charged as an adult with armed robbery, and sentenced to eight years behind bars. He's 25 now. Barksdale tells his story openly and honestly, his thick dreadlocks framing his face. He says robbery wasn't the worst of what he saw growing up in Southeast D.C. Shootings, killings, and drug dealing, a whole lot of, you know, not-so-good things. You know, everybody, they want to be, you know, so-called cool, and they want to be popular. And when you're young like that, and you see that the ones that's doing this, getting all this respect, or, you know, people look up to them, you be like, hey, you, you don't want to do it. Boxdale served two years, until he was 18, at the D.C. jail. And while he was there, he heard about the Free Minds Book Club and writing workshop. Boxdale says he wasn't interested at all, but used to attend meetings. You know, to me, it was just a way to get out my cell and just to get off the juvenile block. That's all. Tara Liebert co-founded the nonprofit more than a decade ago. It's served nearly 900 young people since then. She says they often have a distorted idea of what it means to be a man. So she wants them to see there's a different way through this unconventional book club. They discover it by reading about a character who's really similar to them, maybe the members of their family that were incarcerated running the streets, and they change their view. Once they have a character that has done it, then they can say, oh, maybe I can do it. So it opens up another world of possibilities. Buxdale remembers the first time he scribbled off a poem because Liebert kept asking him to write down his feelings. He says he can't even repeat the title of that poem because he's so ashamed. It was written with so much spite. But when he read it out to the group, something happened. I ain't never wrote no poem before, and they was like, yeah, 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 give him a hand, or, you know, stuff like that, just to, just to encourage me, because that's how they were. So I took, like, a real effort at writing a real poem, and it kind of ignited something, like, within me. Several poems followed. A Youth's Outlook, Domestic Violence, I'm Blessed. All the while he worked on his reading and writing, skills that were always a struggle for him. He still remembers his third grade teacher who took him to different classrooms and announced to other students he couldn't read. She, she embarrassed me. The teacher was telling me that I wasn't smart, I can't read real hurtful things. From that point, I had a different outlook on school. Barksdale started getting into trouble in the seventh grade and eventually dropped out. Tara Liebert says that's a familiar pattern because from what she's seen, these young men would rather be labelled troublemakers than anyone know they can't keep up academically. She says reading and writing help these teenagers let go of past trauma and struggles they've buried deep 
in order to survive. Hurt people hurt people. We have a young man that wrote a poem about my ninth birthday present, and it was when his uncle gave him a gun to put it, put it under his pillow, and he said, happy birthday, you're a man now. That is what surrounded him. I don't know if you want to use the word denial, but I could not believe it because it was totally out of his character. That's Boxdale's mother, Helen, remembering the day her son was sentenced. She says at first she just couldn't believe it. Also because D.C. doesn't have its own prison, Boxdale was moved to a federal prison in Philadelphia to serve out his time when he turned 18. Helen says it was hard having him so far away. But his friends that that he viewed as brothers during the time that he was incarcerated, they've all been murdered. Everyone, no one died because a car hit them or they was in a, or, or got ill. Every one of them. Not that I'm glad of where he was, but sometimes I viewed it as a blessing because I know that if he was home, he very well could have been, you know, be where they are. Tara Liebert and her colleagues at Free Minds Book Club mailed Boxdale novels, published his poems, sent him birthday cards. Boxdale says for the first time he realized how he had hurt the person he robbed and took responsibility for what he did. Liebert says many teenagers just don't realize the consequences of their actions, and because they've been locked up for so many years, they need support even once they return home. We call it a lifetime sentence because though they are 16, when they're first charged, they have a felony on their record. That means they're in the adult system. So when you come home, they have a very difficult time finding a job. They're locked out of a lot of housing. They have problems getting loans, school loans. They can't be in a lot of professions. I mean, it's a huge list she says Free Minds holds workshops on anger management and coping skills and pair returning offenders with a mentor. The rules of prison are completely different. Don't ever show any weakness. But when you're home, you have to ask for help. If you don't ask for help, you're never going to make it in life. And their pride gets in the way. So we, we say to them, that don't worry about your pride. Ask for help. That's really being a man. Don't spend no money. You know, don't, the only time I spend money is on the things that I really need and not the things that I want, you know. Buxdale is now 25 and has a steady job maintaining D.C. government buildings. He's also passed the GED test and has taken classes in computers, construction, and culinary arts. Now he mentors young offenders like 18-year-old Antonio Jackson, who was recently released from prison. He's at Free Minds to pick up a book. 12 Street Smart Recipes for Success. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a good book. Antonio was with friends a year ago when they robbed someone. I was just wanting some money. I was tired of being broke. Antonio has his walls up and his answers are short. Until you ask him about Free Minds, and then his voice becomes animated. Free Minds book, uh, they like, they inspired me to read more. They like your family, like they, they like... Like they, they knew your whole life. And a lot of people don't even treat you like that. Tara Liebert says Free Minds is supposed to be the soft landing between prison and reintegration. It's like the space shuttle when it re-enters the atmosphere. Like you're losing some tiles, you're hitting the ocean hard. You need some help right away. You need that little lifeboat to come and get you out of the capsule and go here, we're going to give you some help before you get in.
She says that Lifeboat isn't just for returning offenders. Helping these young men, she says, is also about creating a safer, more stable society for all of us. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our next story in today's Second Chances show is about a young man named Nick Ballinger. We first met Nick a little more than two years ago. At the time, he was a 17-year-old high schooler and had been a star athlete in his school in Northern Virginia. A swimming accident put an end to his athletics and left him temporarily paralyzed. Jennifer Strong met up with Nick this week in Fairfax, where he's now a college student at George Mason University. My name is Nick Ballinger. About two and a half years ago, I was on vacation in Hawaii and misjudged the depth of water and dove in and dislocated my C4, C5 vertebrae. Nick couldn't move. His dad pulled him from the water. Nick says he was conscious the whole time, from the moment he felt the cracking sensation in his neck to just floating in the water, waiting to be pulled out. His dad kept him calm, telling him over and over not to worry. He said, your body is just in shock. For about three weeks after my injury, I didn't move anything below my neck, except my biceps. I could move my arms up and down a little bit. And then all of a sudden, I moved my legs a little bit. And then little things like that came by piece by piece. I'd be able to wiggle my toes one day, be able to move a different finger every other day. Nick was airlifted home and started treatment at MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital. It's on Irving Street in northwest D.C. Lauren Russell is one of his physical therapists. When I first met Nick, he had no movement in his legs. Um, He couldn't turn himself in bed. He couldn't sit up. He couldn't tolerate being out of bed. He would get really dizzy and pass out. Um, He would constantly vomit just from the nausea of sitting, sitting up. And yet, Nick says he's fortunate. His exact type of injury left the door open for a recovery. So day after day, month after month, he trained hard. His goal, to walk in his high school graduation. Probably the most rewarding thing in my career, and I've worked here for almost nine years, was being able to go to his graduation and watch him walk across the stage. Um, His outpatient therapist and I were both able to go, and it was unbelievable to be able to see that. That was his goal. From day one, he said he wanted to walk at graduation. That's the sound of Nick walking across another stage, this time to accept an award from MedStar National Rehab at its annual gala. At graduation, Nick used a walker. At the gala and on his college campus, he uses only crutches. At today's physical therapy, he walks unassisted under the watchful eye of his trainers. Don't drag that toe. You got nice shoes on, can't drag your toe. Dr. Andrew Guccione is a professor of rehabilitation science at George Mason University. He's studying Nick's progress in this lab where he's walking on a treadmill. Without knowing Nick's medical history, you would never guess that he had an extremely serious injury. He just looks like another college kid walking on a treadmill. He's, he's upright. He's not really holding on. 
Guccione and his two PhD students, who are Nick's trainers, are learning a great deal by analyzing what, for most of us, are everyday movements. Getting out of bed, coming to standing, putting on a pair of pants, standing, brushing your teeth. Those kinds of things, but we are looking to analyze the movement, to understand how Nick is moving,、um, and try to very precisely target where we see discrepancies、um, and inefficiencies. Sound good?、Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go ahead and we're gonna turn around. We still haven't figured out where the end of the journey is. Every time we try something. Nick succeeds, so we go on to the next.、Um, that was an early question from Nick and his parents: "Where does this end?" And I said, "We'll know it when we get there." Nick is clearly proud of his progress, though he's quick to credit his therapists, parents, friends, and doctors. He offers this advice: "You got to throw yourself back into it, back into life, and doing things that you would normally do every day. And that's the best rehab is just getting back into the swing of things." Nick just completed an internship at the U.S. Department of State. His latest goal is to go to law school when he graduates from college. I'm Jennifer Strong. After the break, a Maryland congressman chooses a new path after losing an electoral battle. It's not really productive when you walk the halls of Congress because. You're not resolving issues. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Kavita Kadesa. In this week for Rebecca Shear, welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're talking about second chances, and the subject of our next story knows that not everyone gets a second chance. As a survivor of the Holocaust, Margit Meisner was lucky to escape the Nazis, and as a result, this Bethesda woman's life ended up going in a completely new direction. Lauren Ober has her story. As a young girl growing up in pre-World War II Europe, Margit Meisner's path seemed preordained. I grew up in a Very well-to-do middle-class family, Jewish but not observant Jewish, and I think I was going to become the wife of some well-to-do man, and I was going to have his children and run his household and be a good wife. But the Nazis had other plans. The German army was steadily encroaching on Austria, and Meisner's family had to leave the country and seek refuge in what was then Czechoslovakia. Any plans for a life as a wife and mother to a respectable gentleman were abandoned in Vienna, along with the family's paintings, silver, and other valuables. I was, in many ways, a very naive child because I had, didn't have much of a world experience. But it seemed clear that if the Germans were going to do what they promised, we would certainly lose all our assets, and then each one of us would have to make a living. I was very good at making dolls' dresses, and I really enjoyed it. And when the idea of leaving 
occurred after Austria was annexed. The big discussion was, and so what are you going to do? And the idea was that you had to make a living. So I decided I would study dressmaking in Paris, which was then and still is today the capital of fashion. So in the spring of 1938, Meisner arrived in Paris. She studied drawing, sewing, and pattern making. Later, her mother joined her. But in the spring of 1940, life fell apart. One day, mother was asked to present herself to the police station, that she would be, quote, evacuated, which was like deported. And I accompanied her to the police station, and I asked her, where are you taking her? And they said, none of your business, go home. And she had on her a certain little bit of money, which she gave me, and said, now it's up to you to get us out of here. It was clear that I now had to go into action. Meisner's mother had been taken to an internment camp near the French Pyrenees. But I had no idea. So in the meantime, the Germans were entering Paris, and everything was chaotic. I went to the police to get permission to leave. The police station was open. The policemen were gone. So I thought I had an alibi that I could leave. And so I was by myself. I had no idea whether I'm doing the right thing, where I should go. So it was all very, very frightening. Meisner joined the thousands of Parisians who were making their way out of the city. She was 18 years old. So I decided to buy a bicycle and live on a bicycle rather than walking. And I took along my dressmaking notes and two chocolate croissants and a change of underwear and my oil paints. Because I thought if I was going to become a designer, I needed these paints. And that's how I left Paris on a bicycle with this enormous crowd feeling very sorry for myself and very scared and not knowing, A, where I was going, B, whether somebody in my station could do something like this. What would people think, right? That was very important for me at the time. Through a series of near-miraculous events, she found her mother. The pair escaped France only to land in a Spanish jail. Conditions there were awful. Bed bugs, lice, holes in the ground that served as latrines. But jail was also transformative. I was confronted with prostitutes who were tremendously helpful to me. And I thought never in my life would I meet a prostitute, of course. I was pretty prejudiced against people who weren't like me. And I thought we were really superior and the world owed us something. And then the prison experience in Spain really forced me to rethink who I was. And I did some serious thinking because I realized that my view was not only not appropriate, but was also incorrect. So then I started thinking about what I could become and how I was going to transform myself. And I think it was the beginning of my becoming what I eventually became. What Meisner became was this, 
a cashier in North Carolina, a window dresser in Oklahoma, and a credit manager in Michigan, among many other things. After her ordeal in Spain, Meisner and her mother escaped to the U.S., where she married a GI. Throughout the upheaval that came from following her military husband to his many postings, one thing remained constant for Meisner work. She had always had a job, wherever she was. She re-educated German youth in Nuremberg. She helped produce U.S. foreign policy propaganda in New York. In Beverly Hills, she ran the first clothing company to make poodle skirts. What I learned was that I could take a chance to do something that I didn't know and that I would learn it. So you get a lot of self-confidence from trying things and being successful. And so I learned to be a a risk-taker, and if I failed, well, I thought I'd do something else. In the years following the war, Meisner's life was a whirlwind of adventures, far too many to get into in a short radio story. But she never revisited the life she thought she was destined to lead when she was young. I was primed in my youth to become somebody. Even if I was just the wife of a rich man, I would be... uh, a respected lady. So I didn't become a respected lady, but I became a good worker. Today, Meisner continues to be a good worker. She serves as a guide at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum here in Washington. She was the first Holocaust survivor to do so, and it's a job she considers one of her most important. I'd like to call your attention to this statement because it is very important. At crucial junctures, every individual makes decisions and every decision is individual. And that does not apply to the Holocaust only. This applies basically to all actions in your life. And you have to understand that as an individual, you have tremendous power over what you're going to do. So this is a very important thing to think about forever after. I'm Lauren Ober. You can see photos from Meisner's youth and the years shortly after the war. They're on our website, metroconnection.org. We're going to head out to Maryland's eastern shore now to talk with former Congressman Wayne Gilchrist. Gilchrist now runs the Sassafras Environmental Education Center. And you might call this his second career, or maybe his fourth or fifth. Hans Anderson took a canoe ride with Gilchrist and has this postcard about how a former house painter, forest ranger, and high school teacher became a politician and then went on to something else entirely. I'm uh, Wayne Gilchrist, and I live in Kennedyville, Maryland. Wayne Gilchrist, the new representative of Maryland's 1st District, was briefed by his staff and went to the drawing. With that, I want to yield six minutes to the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Gilchrist. Gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Gilchrist, I thank the speaker. Why is Wayne Gilchrist in trouble? Uh, That's an interesting question. Wayne Gilchrist is a, uh, a Republican congressman from the eastern shore of Maryland. He's been around quite a while. He's also pretty moderate, especially... He's changed. Wayne's changed. Tax and spend. Taxes. I lost the primary in 08. 
I lost my primary to Andy Harris. I'm supporting Andy Harris. He's the true conservative in this race. I'm Andy Harris, and I approve this message. And, you know, that's what happens. You win some, you lose some. With me, nothing really gets rained out. It's raining, like you saw, we're still out in the canoe. Well, see, I've lived here for 35 years, I guess. And this is where my kids, my children, learn how to canoe and hike and fish and swim and all those other things. Right now you have a 1,000 acres, more than a 1,000 acres, on the Turner's Creek and Sassafras River. So I always thought this would be an excellent place for an outdoor school. And I just, when I got out of Washington, I knew people in the county. Uh, I knew people in the school system. So we pulled this whole thing together. It's a beautiful place. This is really a stunningly beautiful ecological treasure. It was a rainy, cold December day. I took the family to Millington. We rented a VCR and a movie called Never Cry Wolf. Gold's not anywhere up here. The real gold is south of 60. Story about a Canadian biologist, Farley Mowat, that went into the northern Canadian woods to study wolves um, in the late 1940s, actually. It was a Walt Disney movie. So seeing that beautiful, wonderful adventure... How do you beat boredom, Tyler? Adventure. ...into this immense, fantastic, bleak landscape. I wanted to do something similar... So it just so happens I somehow finagled the Forest Service in northern Idaho to let me stay in one of their wilderness cabins. I wrote them a letter on an old typewriter, didn't have a, you know, computer, and I mailed it off to all the Forest Service Western District offices. Got home about 11 o'clock one night. My wife said, you got a strange phone call. I said, really? And she said, yes, somebody from Idaho. And I didn't know what they were talking about because I never told my wife I did this. And I got about five or six phone calls from different national forests in different states. So I picked the one in Idaho because the elevation of the cabin was a little above 5,000 feet. I knew there wouldn't be any poisonous snakes because I didn't want to have to deal with rattlesnakes. And so I moved the family out there in July of 1986. So um, my wife stayed about three days. I came back here to Maryland, but I stayed out there with the boys. And then I came back about a year later because I broke my jaw in a horse accident while trying to catch fish in uh, Sand Creek. Uh, we did catch a lot of fish, wrapped them in grass, put them in the saddle. We were heading back to our cabin when we ran into bees. And, the rest is history. Came back and uh, was painting houses for a living because I had to quit my job to go to Idaho. And I read in a local paper, Star Democrat from Easton, that uh, the Republicans couldn't find anybody to run against Roy Dyson, who was the incumbent at the time. I was a registered independent at the time. And I went to uh, see how you run for Congress in Annapolis. And if you ran as a Democrat, it was $100 to file. If you ran as a Republican, it was $100 to file. If you ran as an Independent, it was $300 to file, and you needed 10,000 signatures. So I said, well, that's too much money, and I can't get all those signatures, so I changed from an Independent to a Republican. 
and then ran and you know eventually uh, won. That was former Congressman Wayne Gilchrist, who now runs the Sassafras Environmental Education Center on Maryland's eastern shore. The story was produced by Metro Connections' Hans Anderson. next story centers around a second chance for something no one really likes to see, roadkill. Figuring out what to do with the unfortunate remains of animal car collisions varies from state to state. Now Virginia's Transportation Department thinks it may just have hit on a cleaner, cheaper and more efficient way to address this problem. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has the story. Roadkill might just be the opposite of what you would call a topic for polite dinner party talk. But Jimmy White says you'd be surprised how many people's ears perk up when he raises the subject, as he eagerly does these days. No, it, it, it sort of livens up the conversation. And, you know, I, I've had a, my career at VDOT. I've, I've been here a few years, as you can tell. Uh, you know, I went from building bridges and tunnels to composting roadkill. Before we get down to the details, you should know that VDOT has been researching roadkill composting for a good 10 years now. White, who's in charge of implementing new research and technology for the agency, says VDOT needed to find a new way to deal with roadkill because animal carcasses have become much more than an unpleasant nuisance. They're now an expensive problem, costing the state more than $4 million a year. And that was going up, and it was going up pretty quickly. Uh, we have some areas of the state where we'll, we'll have to pay 60 to to $100 per carcass to dispose of them. That's, you know... That's, that's a lot of money. Decades ago, local landfills were the simplest option for disposing of roadkill. But local landfills have all but disappeared. And the costs of simply transporting roadkill to regional facilities add up fast. Burying carcasses has remained a common practice, but even that has become a real challenge, as deer populations have exploded in some areas where car traffic is increasing as well. They'll have times when they'll have 25 or 30 deer that they pick up in a day. That's a big pile of stuff that you've got to get rid of. And so VDOT turned its eyes across the border into North Carolina. That's where a company called Advanced Composting Technologies was doing interesting work with the livestock and food service industries, two fields that have long searched for the best ways to deal with, shall we say, unsavory waste products. Composting, of course, is nothing new, but the innovation has come in just how fast that composting can happen. 45 days is the waiting time, on average. And nothing left. It's just, it's... Yep, they're gone. That's Mac Bryant a road maintenance crew member for VDOT down in Windsor, Virginia, where the agency has placed one of four pilot composting facilities. Bryant and his crewmates clear dead animals off the local roadways and bring them here to cover them with a mix of compost material and sawdust. This morning, he's got three deer to deal with, and right now he's tossing compost material onto the animals to get the process started. And that's basically about it, as long as they're covered. The genius of composting is in the free labor provided by the microorganisms that already live inside just about any living thing. Microorganisms that do the work of decomposition once mortality sets in. One key to boosting the efficiency of the system lies in the buzzing you hear in the background. 
this sound. These are air pumps. They push air through little PVC pipes at the bottom of each of the four garage-sized chambers here. Those pipes then send that air up through the composting pile, creating an environment where all those microbes can thrive. Another trick, and warning, this is especially icky. As the animals decompose, liquids called leachate seep out of the compost pile. This system catches the leachate so it can be sprayed back onto the piles, speeding up the decomposition process even more. And we're not creating anything that we have to dispose of. We're, we're, we're catching all the leachate, we're pumping it back into the process, so when we get finished, we just end up with some good fertilizer that we can use out here on the road. Even though VDOT's new roadkill routine is still in pilot phase, White says Virginia is already the leading state in the country when it comes to the practice. No facilities so far have made it up to the heavily congested roads of northern Virginia, where White says VDOT may find it needs them the most. The interesting thing about deer, a lot of us think that deer live out in the woods away away from everybody, and they do but not in the numbers that you have when you get into the suburban areas. You've got areas in northern Virginia that are just just deer after deer after deer. That means in the not-too-distant future, VDOT's new microbe workforce could be busier than ever. Making it hard for you to keep down your most recent meal, I'm Jonathan Wilson. If you're interested in seeing VDOT's new roadkill composting process, we've got a slideshow on our website, metroconnection.org. And don't worry, we were careful to avoid close-ups. In a minute... There's a pretty large community of adult skateboarders in this area. Skateboarding, not just for the adolescent crowd anymore. It's coming your way as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Kavita Cardoza, in for Rebecca Scheer. And our show this week is all about second chances. Coming up in just a bit, we'll meet Washingtonians taking a second crack at a hobby they left behind decades ago. But first, we're going to start with the story of a DC teen named Ellie. Her mother asked that we not use her last name. I met Ellie recently at her home in northwest DC, where she was relaxing after a busy day. She talks about her life with the enthusiasm of a bubbly 16-year-old. She swims, Rose is the photo editor of her high school newspaper, loves movies, hangs out with friends. I would say I'm pretty outgoing. I don't know, I've often heard the word spunky kind of being thrown around. But Ellie's journey in the past few years has been a difficult one. When she was in middle school, she was bullied and felt increasingly insecure with her group of friends. She didn't know how to process how she felt. I was scared and upset, depressed, angry, I guess, at like myself and the situation. I decided that I didn't want to ask for help and I wanted to deal with it on my own. But of course, it crashes and burns eventually. Ellie's crash and burn moment came when she was 12 and started cutting or self-harming with a razor. I was in the bathtub, and I think a lot of people have experienced a point where you just can feel the pain, like you're just, you're aching. And I kind of thought, let me try this, because I don't know what else to do anymore. She says by the time she reached ninth grade, she was sometimes cutting her wrists and thighs a couple times a day. She was also developing an eating disorder and becoming more depressed. 
Cutting, she says, provided a temporary release from her problems. Did you feel better? Yeah, a part of me was relieved because it brought a emotional and psychological pain, like it pushed it away and brought out a more physical pain that I could deal with. And I think it gave me an escape, however short period of time where I could focus on that. Dr. Martine Solage is a child and adolescent psychiatrist with Children's National Health System. She says children who cut themselves are not trying to end their lives. Releasing tension, distracting themselves from the negative emotions. Some kids also report a desire to punish themselves. And then we also think that there might be a social communication function to cutting where it's a way for kids to signal to people that they are in need of help. Ellie has a loving family, but they didn't pick up on those signals. In her case, slipping grades, wanting to be alone in her room, and covering up all the time. In ninth grade, I wore a lot of bracelets and a lot of long sleeves. That's really what I did, was just because I didn't want anyone to see. Ellie says her parents would talk about a friend of hers who was also cutting, little knowing Ellie was going through the same thing. They would say, you can't let her affect you or... And I wanted to scream, like, I I can't abandon her like that. For me, I connected with her in this way, and I knew what she was going through. Eventually, though, the parent of a friend called her mother. That led to a conversation Ellie was dreading, but expecting. Ellie says she felt relieved. This kind of weight just came off because I no longer had to try and be secretive about it. But Ellie's stepmother, Karen, says for the three parents, it was a complete shock. You just don't think of your own child as ever going to kind of have those issues. And again, we're learning as we're going because she's been dealing with this for two years. And You're playing we're, we're playing catch up, absolutely. Right away, Karen says all three parents began learning everything they could about the disorder. She's flipping through a notebook filled with phone numbers and insurance details and websites she's researched. So many details to coordinate. There's now a therapist and a psychiatrist and a nutritionist. You're also trying to figure out what your insurance is going to cover. What was even harder to imagine was how long the waiting lists were at some of these facilities. And the, the professionals who are just fantastic, they don't take insurance. So you have to pay up front. She says that could be anywhere from $125 to $350 each hour. It also meant more phone calls and paperwork. It's really overwhelming. And there were three of us working from all different fronts. And I remember clearly thinking to myself, I cannot imagine if I was a single parent having to deal with all of that by myself and still be able to look after my child. Dr. Martine Solange from Children's says it's important for children like Ellie to have a comprehensive mental health evaluation. Even though cutting is usually not done with suicidal intent, it is absolutely a risk factor for future suicide attempts and should really prompt a comprehensive mental health evaluation because cutting can occur in the context of multiple different psychiatric illnesses, including depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders. Andrew Sperling with the National Alliance on Mental Illness says his organization gets thousands of calls from across the country asking for help getting treatment. There are approximately 8,000 practicing child and adolescent psychiatrists in the U.S., but more than 15 million patients who need treatment. There are counties where there isn't a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist for hundreds of miles. In many communities all across the country, uh, we have a shortage of acute inpatient psychiatric beds. 
And here's where we get some very bad outcomes. Sperling says while most insurers do provide mental health coverage, there are a lot of restrictions to navigate, and appealing decisions can take years. For her part, Ellie received individual therapy and group therapy. She was hospitalized twice and went to a residential treatment facility for three months where the family received therapy with her. Today, the tiny white scars around her wrists are the only visible telltale marks of the pain she's been through. Ellie has stopped wearing a mask, as she puts it, hasn't cut herself in nearly a year, and wants to become a therapist herself. What she most looks forward to? Being alive, really. A couple of years ago, I just wasn't sure if I would make it to 16 or to high school graduation or to college realizing that happiness is an option and that it might not be easy, but there really is a light at the end of the tunnel. A light that she hopes signals there's no more stigma or silence around mental health struggles. We have more resources about cutting and other forms of self-harm on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you or a loved one have struggled with cutting, we'd be interested in hearing your story. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or on Twitter. Our handle is at wamu-metro. We'll wrap things up today with a story that came to us via email from a man named Ryan Nelson. Nelson is 40 years old and told us he listens to Metro Connection on Saturday mornings as he's driving to local skate parks. Now, skateboarding is often thought of as a sport for teens, but Nelson isn't chauffeuring his kids to these parks. He's a skateboarder himself. And he told us, I've been mostly skating with people between ages 35 and 50. We all hold down pretty respectable jobs and we always arrive at the parks super early. Well, we wanted to know more, so we sent Lauren Landau to meet up with Nelson and his crew to find out why they keep skateboarding, even as they grow older. The cold air bites through my sneakers and thin gloves, but the sun is shining when I arrive at Sunnyside Skate Park in College Park on a Saturday morning. By the way, yeah. I hope you didn't come out here to see, like, good skating. No, 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 no. <laughs> some, some guys can, can rip and skate really well, but not me. I've been mediocre for most of my life, so... That's Ryan Nelson, and I think he's joking. But mediocre or not, he's been a skateboarder for most of his life. I started skating in 1986 when I was in sixth grade, and we never wore pads, we never did any anything like that. I grew up here, and on the East Coast, there weren't any skate parks, there weren't any bowls, there weren't anything. All we did was skate street. Every once in a while, he says, word would get out about a vertical ramp out in the country. Out in the country, I mean like in Upper Marlboro. That's not the country, but somebody with a lot of land out there would actually build a ramp. He'd be a friend of a friend of a friend. We'd make a trek out there to skate his ramp for like an hour. You couldn't practice and get good at this sort of thing, and we'd be terrible. He says he kept at it until about midway through high school, then stopped, for the most part, skating off and on. Until last year. It's like a Rip Van Winkle sort of thing. I haven't skated in years and years and years, and then when I woke up, 
all these free parks are everywhere. They're all over the place, and it's crazy, and they're all free. And, he says, that's created a whole generation of skateboarders who see the activity in a totally different light. For us, it used to be vert skating and street skating, you know, back in the mid-'80s, and the really hardcore people would do pool skating. But now there's this whole other thing, which is called park skating. So kids, like, that's their initiation. My initiation was skating a 7-Eleven and back. You know, like, skateboarding was transportation first, and then it was something else. The scene has changed, but so has Ryan. He's 40 now, a soon-to-be father and a high school English teacher. His students know he skates, by the way. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them have asked me about it. And I've been very clear with them that we're never going to hang out. The guys in Ryan's crew are in their 30s and 40s, for the most part. So we're not talking about retirees here. But they are older, and Ryan says the extra years make a difference. I think the difference is that when we fall now, it hurts so much more. Even though he was too cool and resilient for wrist guards back in the day, Ryan wears them now. It's easier to get hurt, and the stakes are higher. These guys have jobs, families, and real responsibilities. But they're still skateboarders. When are you going to stop skating? When do you hang up the skateboard? Hopefully never. What's the... Yeah, what's the quote from Lance? It says, um, skateboarding doesn't make you a skateboarder. It's not being able to stop skateboarding that makes you a skateboarder. <laughs> that was John Bulldog, but everybody calls him Bulldog. He's 42 and has been skating for about 30 years. He says it's a huge part of who he is, and his wife recognizes that. When I don't skate, she's kind of like, oh my God, you need to get out of here. You need to go skate because I get kind of more crazy when I don't have like the release Bethesda resident Christopher Grady is 38 and says his body has changed since the late 80s when he first started skating. I'm easily 70 pounds heavier than the last time when I was skating consistently. So uh, I had to completely relearn balance and everything. It was a bummer of a first day back, and I kind of ate it a couple of times pretty hard. But, uh, it's not like riding a bike. No, it is not <laughs> like riding a bike at all. Sometimes, when it's too crummy out to skate, the guys drive down to Virginia to visit Patty Hurst. The 48-year-old mom doesn't merely allow skating in her house. She encourages it. We're in my basement of my townhouse in the East Falls Church area of Arlington, and uh, half of the basement is devoted to a mini ramp that is about two feet tall and 12 feet wide and has a spine and a wall that goes to vert, meaning that you can skate up on one of the walls and come back down. At first, this space was a storage room. My original idea was to build the quarter pipe down in the basement so that I could skate here in peace without bothering my neighbors. <laughs> and it just grew from there. This is actually the second version of this mini ramp. We built it once and then it got too small and too easy and we tore it down and built it again to be more difficult and fun. Ryan, Christopher, and Bulldog all started skating when they were kids. But Patty's road to the ramp was a bit different. I started when I was 39. I had a midlife crisis. The Winter Olympics were on TV, and Patty watched as snowboarder Sean White won his first gold medal in the halfpipe competition. He was excited and having fun and making jokes, and I told myself I really need to get a little bit of that in my life. With that, Patty decided she'd become a snowboarder. But she quickly realized there aren't many opportunities to carve down mountainsides in the Washington area. When she learned that her muse, Sean White, is also a skateboarder, she decided to give that a try. I went into a skate shop here in the Vienna area, and I told the dude, who was probably 18 years old, behind the counter that I wanted to set up a board. And he said, you mean for your son? <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> for 
me. <laughs> and he took a breath, and to his credit, he spent the next three hours choosing all of the parts of a skateboard that we would need to set me up with my very first skateboard. She set out for local skate parks and found there's a pretty large community of adult skateboarders here in the D.C. area. 39-year-old skateboarder Anna Martin just landed a trick on Patty's mini ramp. I've been skating for two years, and um, actually Patty was there the first day I dropped it, so I met her pretty early on in the scene. She says there's a lot more to skateboarding than the activity itself. Skateboarding has taught me that I can accomplish things that I never thought I could, and when you do get to that point where you do accomplish it, there's no other feeling like it, but it does teach you to um, overcome your fears and set goals for yourself and surpass any boundaries that you might have. Patty says she wishes she'd tried skating sooner, but says it didn't even occur to her until she was nearly 40 years old. I don't know why, but it took me that long to realize that I wanted to have some fun. She says it's never too late to start anything, really. I'm Lauren Landau. Have you taken up an old hobby or passion lately? We'd love to hear your story. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Landau, Hans Anderson, and Lauren Ober, along with reporter Jennifer Strong. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connections managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. You can find information about all the music we use at metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can also find a link to our free weekly podcast or check us out on iTunes and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll have a show all about changes. We'll visit an exhibit designed to get us to treat local art like locally grown food. We'll visit a DC barber shop that's bracing for an uncertain future as we debut a new series we're calling Clips. And we'll look at a training program designed to alter the way DC police officers interact with transgender people. I'm Kavita Cardoza, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 885 News. <laughs>